Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about a bloke named Salomon August Andre. And, uh, well, what he got up to in the late 19th century, either incredibly courageous or incredibly bloody stupid, uh, what, he, what he tried to do was get to the North Pole, which is, you know, an admirable, admirable attempt to make, make history, first bloke of the North Pole, get around him, absolutely love it. But the way he decided to get there was in a hot air balloon. And this took place in 1897. And because you, well, the reason you haven't heard of uh, Salomon August Andre being the first man to get to the uh, the North Pole, you know, whether it was by hot air balloon, dodge car or bloody Santa's sleigh, uh, was because, spoiler alert, he didn't bloody make it. So we're going to have a chat about exactly what happened here, what this whole story involved and some of the more ridiculous elements of, uh, uh, you know, what this fellow was all about. Uh, so let's get to it. Uh, a bit of background here on Andre. He is a uh, he's a Swedish scientist, a Swedish scientist engineer, who thought it'd be a terrific idea to fly a, ho- a hot air balloon from Svalbard, which is up you know right up north in the Arctic Circle there, above uh, north above Norway and Sweden, uh, to either Canada or to Russia, and en route, you know, just pop over the geographic North Pole. And at this stage, end of the 19th century, no one had actually ever been to the North Pole, so our mate Andre, he reckons that he's the man for the job. So, we'll get stuck in, have a chat about, uh, you know, what this whole adventure involved, uh, starting in 1893. So as I say, he's, a, he's an engineer at, uh, at the Swedish Patent Office, but he's got a real thing for ballooning, I'll tell you this. He bought his first balloon in 1893, and he used to go on little trips here and there out of Stockholm or out of Gothenburg, right? Um, he has a couple of adventures while he's doing these strong winds blast him off course and, you know, sometimes onto the little islands outside Stockholm there. And one time he even got, all blown, uh, he got, got blown clear to Finland, all the way over to Finland, but he doesn't care. He's all about the ballooning life. He's a steely-eyed balloonman, and, uh, and you know, he's, he's absolutely loving it. So... The other thing I should mention, probably, the other thing about this is, you know, he's not just floating around, you know, counting the clouds or doing whatever else. He, he's actually doing some, some, you know, well, what he considers to be real science as he's, as he's uh, you know, up and about in his balloons. Um, he's working on a new way to steer hot air balloons, which is called drag rope steering. This involves, surprisingly enough, it involves dragging a rope along the ground uh, while you're flying along, which al- allows you to use sails on, on the balloon to steer. I mean, look, yes. I don't understand it either. Luckily, this isn't half-assed physics, so you know I don't. I'm not contractually obliged to explain it here. But obviously, it doesn't. It doesn't actually doesn't even really matter how it works because it doesn't really work anyway. Drag rope steering has been sort of discovered to be about as useful as a chocolate teapot by modern balloonists, I guess. A balloon, a balloonists, sure. You know, followers of balloonism. Anyway, anyway, anyway. No matter how you slice it. Old, old mate Andre, uh, he's all about the balloon lifestyle. He's bloody loving it. And he reckons that he could put together a balloon that could be blown clear across the North Pole, as I say, all the way from Scandinavia, all the way to uh, you know either Russia or to, uh, to Canada. Now, the Swedish government, they are so happy to hear this. I'll tell you that. They're bloody happy. They're jumping out of their skins with excitement because they are keen as mustard to be the first blokes to get to the North Pole. Now, I had to point out here, I feel like they've got a bit of a head start on the rest of the world, to be honest. You know, it's not that impressive to get to the North Pole from Sweden. I mean, it's still impressive. Let's not take it any way, but it's not that impressive to get there from Sweden. I'd be, I think I'd be a fair bit more impressed if, you know, bloody 
South Africa or, or Uruguay or something. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're making a bit of the first there, but whatever. We'll, we'll give we'll give Sweden a crack at it. And in 1895, Andre gives this you know big bloody speech at the uh, at the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences, where he unveils his plan. I'll tell you what, he must have done a bloody good job of it here because people got around him in a major way. He comes out of the stage, you know, blue jeans, black turtleneck on, and he explains just how he's going to do it, how he's going to build this balloon and fly clear over the North Pole. He says he'll build a balloon that can carry three blokes and all their equipment plus food and drink for months, months and months. This trip was going to take, no worries. He'd then sail right over the North Pole at the height of the Arctic summer so the sun would be out all day to help him steer. Easy peasy. Also, no cold nights to worry about. You don't mess around with the temperature of the air in the balloon. And he went on and on about drag rope steering, this nonsense that he'd been up to the last couple of years, talking about how it was the perfect way to steal a balloon while flying... Steer, steer a balloon, not steal a balloon. Although I guess it would be easy to steal a balloon if you're dragging ropes. You know, you could climb up the rope, the steering rope, and then steal it from there. I don't know. Anyway, this isn't, you know, this isn't... Grand Theft Horse. This isn't Red Dead Redemption. We're talking about the, the cold hard business of history here. Um, he talks about how drag rope steering is perfect over the ice due to the lack of friction. Again, don't understand it. Don't need to. It's rubbish. Finally, he talks about how the weather would be perfect for a trip like this as any snow would either melt, right, or be blown off the top of the balloon uh, depending on the temperature. And so he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be uh, sort of weighed down by extra, rate, you know, extra rainfall or snowfall or whatever it is. Now, all this very bloody admirable optimism uh, ignored a few pretty important realities uh, because, of course, there still could be very terrible weather even during the summer in the Arctic. And, uh, you know, it wasn't as simple as saying, well, mate, I'm going to build a huge big balloon and, and have it be perfect. But that doesn't matter. The Swedish are tripping over themselves to chuck money at Andre, who, again, is all smiles, all confidence, get around him, absolutely love it. He's a Swedish hero. He gets over 130,000 kroner, which is about a million bucks in today's terms, and amongst his donors are the bloody king himself, King Oscar II, and, if you'll believe it, Alfred Nobel, founder of the Nobel Prize. So, now that he's all cashed up, now that he's got these dollar-dollar bills, right, or these Krona Krona bills doesn't quite have the same ring to it. I can see why dollar dollar bills is is the uh, you know the the common parlance amongst uh, amongst the rapping folk. You can see just how down I am with 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 the the street level. I, I'm going to pull out now out of this steep nose dive because yeah I I am way out of my depth here. Um, uh, he's all cashed up. He's cashed up and he gets on with the business of of building his balloon. At this stage, his project is getting a lot of attention, and uh, other, admittedly more experienced balloonists are weighing in and saying, Andre, mate, seriously, this is not going to work. You are overlooking so many things here, and your head is a, a long way up your own bum. And Andre says, no, nah, mate, look, stick it up your bum instead. I'm the bloody balloon king. Check me out. Go to the North Pole. See you later. He calls his balloon Urnen. I don't know how to say it in Swedish. I don't have a potato nearby. Nope, don't have a potato nearby to put in my throat. Oh no, that's the Danes, isn't it? Sorry, the Danes are the ones who speak like uh, like they've got potatoes in their throats. The Swedish, the Swedish is the one who sings. So it's called the Urnen, um, Swedish for the eagle. Uh, and in fairness, it's a bloody beauty. It really is. It's big enough for three blokes to live in with a little sleeping area and storage for you know all sorts of gear and, and well's provisions. It's bloody huge. It is. But the best bit, however, the best bit about this whole balloon, I, I love reading about this bit, was the cooker. Because the balloon was going to be filled with hydrogen, obviously they couldn't have, you know, a stove 
or a cooker or any any open flames anywhere near the balloon itself, or we'd have a you know bloody pre-Hindenburg situation here. So the solution that Andre came up with was to design a cooker that was dangled meters below the basket and lit from there. They had to use a mirror to check on it while they were using it. They had to like light it, you know, eight meters or six meters from from the basket to down below, right? So this is how they they solved the the problem of you know cooking their bloody their little. Uh, Typical Swedish food. The only Swedish food I know is of surströmming, the really disgusting fish, and I don't think they would have taken that in the balloon. However, I'm very ready to be wrong about that, so we'll see. Anyway, he gets it built, and in 1896, he decides everything's ready. At this point, point Andre is surrounded by critics pointing out that, you know, for this thing to work, the wind has to blow the right way for the whole time, that, that hydrogen can't leak out of the balloon. Uh, by the way, the balloon has millions and millions of holes in it because of all the stitching that's been done, and hydrogen obviously is able to get through those tiny holes uh, and can leak out. And it also has to be avoid, uh, avoid being weighed down by ice and snow. You remember we talked about before Andre being ready for that eventuality, or he thought he was anyway. But, uh, you know, these are, these are all the problems that... The, his critics are, are going on about. Andre, he doesn't care though. He doesn't care at all. Get around him. Once again, he's going to show all these idiots. Don't even worry about it. And in 1896, he and two other blokes get ready for the flight. One of the blokes, his name, his name is Nils Gustav Eckholm. And uh, Eckholm also starts to put the question to, to Andre and ask him, you know, again, some pretty tough questions here. He says, listen here, Andre, mate, love the plan. I really do. But what about all them tiny holes in the balloon when they've done the stitching? There's millions of them. Hydrogen's going to leak out of them real bad, mate. I, I, I'm a bit worried about this. And Andre turns to him and says, mate, don't even worry about it. I'll solve that. Look at this. Got this special secret glue stuff that plugs up the holes good and proper. Got it sorted, big fella. Don't even worry about it. And Ekblom goes, oh, Okay, fair dues, no worries, mate. But all the same, all the same, he's not he's not sure about this secret special glue. By the way, that's not a joke. He did have this like special formula secret glue thing that he was going to use to plug up all the holes. And Ekblom doesn't believe him, so he goes and checks on Andre's calculations, realizes that he's got no idea. The balloon might even last three weeks, let alone a month, you know, it's supposed to take to fly across the North Pole. But check this out. If you'll believe it, Andre has been cooking the books. During the tests, when they were testing to see how much hydrogen would actually leak out, Andre had been sneaking in extra top-ups of hydrogen into the balloon during this test to make it seem like it would last for longer in the year. So he's just cheating. They haven't even taken off, and he's just, he's cheating on you know and, 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 and fudging all these test results. So here we should start to see, here I think it's fair to point out that old oh, mate Andre may not have had you know the the most uh, the most firm grip on reality may not have been just about as sure as he as, as he said he was about everything which uh, is quite interesting as, as as we'll see as the story progresses anyway Despite all this, Andre is ready to go in 1896. He makes his first attempt to get the whole thing underway. And unfortunately for our mate here, despite all you know, his big talk about the wind not being a problem, uh, it blows steadily and unrelentingly to the south, and Andre doesn't even manage to get in the air. This first attempt to, uh, to get the balloon airborne is a total, colossal, and dismal failure. Pretty bloody disappointing for a bloke who had been talking big game for so long. Looks like the hot air was coming out of his mouth rather than being inside of the balloon. Eh? 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 Oh, I thought it was pretty good. Anyway, they reschedule for next year. They're going to do it 12 months later. But Ekblom, he has had enough of Andre's nonsense, and so he bails. He flakes out in the project says, stick it up your bum. I'm not interested. You know, you've been, you've been bloody using a bike pump with hydrogen to fill up the balloon. I'm not doing it, right? This means that in the summer of eight, nine, 1897, Andre is ready to go again with two other blokes, Nils Strindberg, who had been on the team last year. So he'd been, you know, one of the original three. And a new, bl- a new bloke whose name is Knut Frankel. 
This time, the wind favours them. It's blown the right way, blown to the north. And so after making all the necessary preparations, these three blokes, they jump into the basket. On the 11th of July, 1897, Andre gives a quick speech he wants sent off to, you know, the king and the papers and whoever else, and then they cut the ropes and he's off and away. Unfortunately, however, it was not a particularly triumphant beginning because within minutes, the drag ropes were causing issues, dragging the balloon lower than planned. So all of these, you know, all this, uh, this uh, highfalutin talk about the, the fact that this, uh, you know, drag rope steering was going was, was to, you know, save the day, well, did the exact opposite because two of the drag ropes are actually lo- lost by this friction as well as dragging the, the balloon down further to the, towards the ground. Two of the drag ropes, they came unscrewed, they were lost. And the boys in the basket, they dumped hundreds of kilos of sand, of dead weight that they had there uh, as well to gain height. So all up, within the first couple of minutes, they've lost almost 750 kilos of weight straight away, which throws out all of Andre's calculations about the balloon you know, being steerable. That's, that's right at the window. And not only that, the balloon then rises to a height of 700 metres. And due to the lower air pressure at that height, even more hydrogen started escaping through, again, these millions and millions of tiny little stitching holes that I talked about before. So it's all gone south already, uh, you know, and as we know, Andre is very keen on going north, both in a figurative sense and a literal one. So he's in big trouble here. And he knows this too. He wrote in his diary about how they were losing hydrogen, how the balloon was weighed down with water thanks to the rain, despite Andre insisting that this wouldn't be an issue, and how they had to keep chucking payload overboard to keep the balloon in the air. However, despite all this, he uses uh, uh, some pretty ingenious ways of trying to communicate with the outside world. He uses some boys, not like, you know, small male children he wasn't chucking them overboard although i guess that probably would have done better than the the little floating boys that he put in the put in the sea below with little messages in them well message in a bottle and homing pigeons which i thought was very very optimistic they brought along little boys and homing pigeons there um uh, to send off you know messages to whoever was uh, was paying attention uh, the messages they sent off weren't found for ages and ages afterwards uh, it turns out sending homing pigeons off in a hot air balloon was just one of the many very questionable decisions that was made during this whole expedition but uh, eventually these messages were recovered years later and we found out, you know, exactly what was going on in the opening stages of this uh, of this journey here. Nonetheless, the balloon sails bravely on, battles through all, you know, these adverse and unplanned conditions, courageously transporting these heroic mavericks on and on and on and on towards their fated destination for about two days. Because after just over 50 hours, the balloon, which had been bumping along the ground on and off for quite a while now, finally crashed down onto the ice below and, and, and didn't rise again. Well... Actually, it wasn't really a crash. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of overstating things a little bit. It was actually very gentle. Uh, the three blokes, they were completely unhar- unharmed. Uh, and even the cameras and, you know, the, the, the equipment that, and stuff that they brought with them was completely undamaged. So it seems like they dodged a bullet there and just had a nice little gentle touchdown. Anyway, it doesn't matter how gently they landed because they're now completely alone in the middle of a massive field of ice, miles and miles away from anyone and everyone. They are in big trouble. So, from the 14th of July onwards, these three are stuck hundreds of kilometres away from the nearest settlement, but they still decide that all is not lost and that they're going to just walk back south towards Svalbard. Easy, like just like that, you know, a couple of hundred kilometres. What's that when you're stuck in the Arctic Circle on ice and freezing and all that sort of stuff? No worries, we'll just walk south back to Svalbard. We have an excellent record of how this whole thing took place as the three of them kept journals very, very, very meticulously indeed. They kept very meticulous journals throughout this entire trip. Um, and they also have a ton of supplies, at least, and a fair bit of equipment, uh, although most of it, you know, kind of rubbish. Andre had designed a lot of it and hadn't bothered, you know, checking with people to see if it was actually any good or not, but still, they've got a lot of equipment. 
Um, and so they spend about a week at the crash site figuring out their plan of attack, and then they set off to the south. Uh, obviously, they've completely given up on the North Pole. That's that's not even close to being on the agenda anymore. They just want to get back to safety and civilization now, so they are giving up on the, on the northward trek. So... They took all the food they had and a heap of water, but left behind stuff like, you know, the bloody champagne and beer and all that other stuff they'd packed just in case they wanted to get, you know, really wrecked one night on the balloon. And with about 200 kilograms on each of their sleds, they set off on the 22nd of July, making for a supply cache uh, to their south. Uh, it was extremely tough going, uh, very, very horrifically bad t- terrain. And after about a week, they go, bugger this for a joke, and they lighten their sleds to just 130 kilograms each. They're dragging these sleds across the ice, and it's just too much. So they, they, they drop about 70 kilos each, and, and they continue from there. But this means, however, after having dropped all this weight, they've got to start to hunt for food. And so they start to shoot and eat seals and polar bears and walruses whenever they can find them. After a few more days of this, they change course, hoping for easier terrain, and uh, every now and again, they get it. Bloody ripper, you know, speed up the progress a little bit, uh, rather than, you know, having to crawl on their hands and knees over horrible, uh, uneven uh, terrain and, and ice and what have you. Um, but after a few more days of this, uh, you know, terrain getting a little bit easier here, there and everywhere, um, they decide, they find an actually quite an ingenious way to uh, to travel a little bit faster because they've got a little boat. Well, a boat is generous. They've got a, a device that floats. They've got a frame of sticks that is covered by balloon material and this actually works. This may have been because it was one of the few bits of equipment that wasn't designed by Andre. Who knows? But that is, that is the case. It wasn't designed by Andre and it did work. So correlation doesn't imply causation. I'll let you figure it out for yourself. Anyway. Even with this boat, even with, you know, the fact that they can sort of go between some of the ice flow and that sort of stuff on, on the water in this boat, it's really, really not coming together for these poor blokes. The ice flows that are on, they're pushing against them. They're actually, the, the current is uh, is taking them further north on this ice in, in, many, in many cases, and they're not making any real progress anywhere at all. And as a result, on the 12th of September, they acknowledge they're not going to make it back anywhere before winter, and so they change plans again. This time, they make their way onto a largish uh, ice flow and they build themselves a little house. It's getting colder and colder outside, so using ice and snow, they make a little sort of igloo type thing to live in. Cozy as anything, mate. It's quite large as well. Um, you can still see drawings of it. They, did made, they sketched out little plans of it and then built it. You can still see those sketches even today. Um, the, now, the flow that they, they built it on is big enough to house them, but it's also small enough to drift with the current and whatever else. Now, you remember there was a current that was pushing them north, but at this stage with on this ice flow, they actually managed to manoeuvre themselves. Not, not 100% sure how this worked, but they actually managed to make a, a fair bit of progress towards where they wanted to go while just floating along on this ice flow. Again, I don't know how they did it, but they, they managed to do it all the same. So for a couple of weeks there, things are looking pretty bloody good for them. They're, they're actually speeding south on this ice flow, not having to drag their stuff with them everywhere, and they're generally having a pretty decent time, and you know, they are adventure you know in their little igloo however on the 2nd of october after they've been going on this flow for a little bit the flow bumps into kvitoya an island that's part of the svalbard archipelago and unfortunately after bumping into the area around this island it's the flow starts to fall to bits and and the cracks start to emerge right through the little, little igloo thing that they've built so their house is falling to bits no worries however the boys they get their stuff together they move onto the island kvitoya uh, and hope to set up shop there unfortunately this is where things really take a turn for the worse as they move on to the island. It's starting to get really cold, cold, colder and colder every day, and the conditions are becoming worse and worse. They're becoming almost impossible, effectively. At this stage, the diary entries uh, you know, that this whole story is based on, they start to break down, and they become quite incomprehensible in, and incoherent. Up until this point... The diary entries indicate that, you know, they've been in good spirits. They've been surviving. They've been keeping their, their chins up. They've been, you know, occupying themselves with, with the business of staying alive. 
meticulous diary, diary entries. Our, our mate here with the camera, seven kilograms this camera was, but he was snapping camera, uh, photos left, right and centre, hundreds and hundreds he took, like a bloody, you know, 18-year-old on Instagram he was, taking pictures everywhere. And the boys actually seemed to have been having a pretty good time. But the arrival in Katoya here is where things really start to go south for them. Uh, again, in a literal sense as well as a figurative one. Uh, as they move onto the island, try to set up shop there, it seems like fate finally turned, their luck finally turned. And while we'll never know for sure, it seems that within a few days of moving on to Kvitoya, and we'll talk about exactly what happened or what we think might have happened, but within a few days, Nils Strindberg, Knut Frankel, and Salomon August Andre were all dead, just like that. So... There's not a whole lot of consensus as to what actually happened to them on Kvitoya, but we do know that they didn't last long. Very unfortunately, this was the end of their expedition. We can try to piece together what happened based on the evidence that we have and, and make some you know, educated guesses as to what, what took place once they moved onto this island. For example, it seems clear that Strindberg was the first to die, although, again, we're not 100% sure of what, as he was, but he was buried by the other two, so that we know that he was, he was the first to go. But anyway, you slice it. All three men died in Kvitoya, and what has hap- what happened to them has uh, was it was a great mystery for several decades because you know we now know that they ended up there, but at the time, for thirty years, even after this whole expedition kicked off, he just disappeared. No one knew what happened to him. No one had known what happened to 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 Andre and and and, the, and his mates there. It's a big, big mystery until nineteen thirty, when a Norwegian sealing ship called the called the Bratvag uh, landed on Kvitoya. Uh, which was usually inaccessible due to the ice that almost always surrounded it. And two sealers, Olav Salen and Karl Tusvik, discover uh, Andre's boat, uh, uh, and, and they take a report of this back to the, the captain of the Bratvag, Peter Eliasson, uh, who orders a full search of the island. And here is where we can start to dig into the mystery of what happened to these three boys once they arrived on Kvitoya, because here is where all this evidence turns up. After 30 years of the Swedish public not having any idea, these Norwegians finally turn up and start to shed some light on the whole affair. They find the remains of Andre and of Strindberg, and a bunch of the stuff that had with them when they died, including not only their diaries, but also rolls and rolls and rolls of film that, again, had been taken with this seven-kilogram camera dragged around all over the ice. And as for what actually killed them, there's still a fair bit of debate and a fair few theories which we're going to get into now. A leading theory is that they died from infections after eating uncooked polar bear meat, especially as all of them had been writing a, mm, they'd been writing about, um, to put it politely, a digestive discomfort in their journals. To be honest, it looked like all three of them had been bloody pooping their guts out for weeks. Nasty business there. And uh, this may have been due to bacteria and, and, and I don't know, I think it was a strain of ringworm that, uh, you know, was in the, in the undercooked meat of the polar bears. Anyway, another theory is that Strindberg had died first while chasing a polar bear to eat and uh, the other two had been killed by carbon monoxide poisoning after their little stove had malfunctioned. There are any number of other theories as well which are, tend to be treated with a little bit less credibility, uh, including an attack by polar bears. Their remains were cremated after returning to Sweden without being properly examined, so you know we're not sure about that. Um, and even suicide, as they had tons and tons of opium with them, so they may have been able to do it, uh, you know, off themselves relatively easily. But uh, an interesting theory that was put forward is that they just gave up. They just may have gave up. All of their important equipment was just lying around the camp. Some of it hadn't even been moved away from where they landed on the boat. Um, they may have just. You know, this this may have indicated they just lost the will to to continue. They just didn't want after losing their house on the ice floe after after weeks of freezing cold, uh, exhaustion, and and these terrible conditions. They just they just gave up. You know, they did, they definitely didn't starve. They didn't starve. They had plenty of food left over, uh, but they may have just lost the will to live after months and months of you know extreme hardship. This stuff that I've been talking about. Nonetheless, 
And after their corpses were brought back from uh, back to Sweden, they're hailed as heroes. Everyone is up and about mourning for them. You wouldn't believe it. They are seen as brave and courageous, and they're celebrated as champions of Swedish glory. Good on them. Get around them. However, what's interesting about this story now today in the 21st century just as with Robert Falcon Scott and the Terra Nova expedition, episode two, half Us history, get around it, recent analysis suggests something slightly different, that they weren't these homegrown heroes that uh, everyone sort of made them out to be at the time. You may have already figured out that Andre was a bit of a loose unit. Uh, he went into this whole thing with, with a fair bit of foolish optimism and didn't really know what he was doing with a lot of the stuff that, you know, that, that he got up to here. He stuffed a fair bit of the whole project up, and in all honesty, might not have been that brave or courageous. Today, the idea uh, is that he may have just been too scared to lose face and give up on what was ultimately, you know, a completely pointless exercise. He had all these people saying, nah, it's no good, it's useless, whatever else, and he's got the king chucking money at him. He may have just not been had the guts to turn around. He may not have had the ticket to turn around and say, honestly, this is a fool's errand, I'm not going to do it. So, I mean, you've got to feel for the bloke, because that is not a good position to be in. And, you know... I don't want to be too hard on him here. Despite his idiocy, idiocy and despite his failure, I really don't want to be too hard on old, old mate Andre because he gave something his all and he made a legitimate attempt to push human achievement further than ever before. And it's very easy to dismiss that on the back of the result because, yeah, he didn't do a very good job and he might have been a bit of a goose. But I'll tell you this, at least he got up and at least he had a go. And after surviving for months and months in some of the most trying and difficult conditions you can possibly imagine, these three men prevailed much longer than you'd ever think that they had a chance to, or a right to, even. They stuck together, they fought hard against the ravages of fate, and they showed a determination to survive in the face of truly bloody appalling odds. And even as their fate drew near, even there, right at the end, Andre shared his thoughts and his feelings on the adventure before succumbing to his doom. And this is what he wrote. After moving to, uh, onto Vitoya with the very, very last coherent entry in his journal, this is what he wrote. With such comrades, one should be able to manage under, I may say, any circumstances. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Salomon August Andre and his uh, ill-fated expedition to get to the North Pole in a hot air balloon. I still, I mean, we didn't really spend much time talking about that, but oh my goodness, getting to it. I mean, what what is to go through your head to decide to go, the best way to go to the North Pole is to get in a hot air balloon. Anyway, that's how we did it, or how we didn't do it rather, and I hope you enjoyed the story because yeah, bit of a, <laughs> you know, bit of a bit of a downer ending there, but still got on him for, for getting up and having a crack. Anyway, that is that for another episode of Half House History. Thanks for hanging out with me this week. It's been great to have your company. It always is, of course. Uh, usual boring housekeeping announcements here. Halfhousehistory.net is the website. You can also get in touch with the show on Twitter at uh, halfhousehistory, without no, wouldn't fit, very annoying. Plenty of people getting con in contact with the contact form. I want to say thank you to uh, to the people who have emailed me with some of your very kind messages of, of support. And uh, I want to say uh, a very special thank you, of course, to the patrons. I've got a, a number of people who are just chucking money at me every every month on Patreon. Uh, if you want to do the same, on the website, there's a link to the Patreon. You're under no obligation to do it. There are no benefits or rewards or anything, but I cannot tell you how much I appreciate all of my loyal patrons throwing me money hand over fist. Uh, I, I, I mean, it is just so humbling and flattering. So thank you very much. And I want to give a special shout out to one of my loyal patrons. I think one of the very first, if not the first, uh, Philip Muller, 
who uh, got in touch the other week. Some uh, alert listeners may have noticed that I made a couple of editing errors in some of the previous episodes. I had to kind of rush them out uh, last minute. And uh, there were a couple of little mistakes in there. And uh, Phil got in touch with me and told me exactly where they were and all that sort of stuff. And I, I want to say thank you very much, Phil, for your help there. I managed to fix them up. Uh, well, almost all of them. There's one that I'm just like, oh, I can't be bothered going for. It's not that bad, so I'll just, I'll just leave it in there. Um, but thank you so much, and thank you to all the other people getting in touch. I'm still sending out stickers to people. Uh, if you want some free stickers, I'll send them to you. There's a massive delay with them at the moment. Uh, I'm recording this in Australia, so I don't have my little, uh, my little uh, stack of stickers that I have back at home in Scotland. Uh, but I'll send them to you as soon as I'm back there. Uh, so please do get in touch, uh, halfhousehistory at gmail.com, or just use the contact form on the website. That's generally easy to do it. I'll send you stuff like that. Anyway, this is one of the longest outros I've ever done. I'm really sorry. I know podcast outros suck, so I'm, I'm just going gonna, gonna to wrap this one up nice and quick, leaving you, as usual, with a question posed on Reddit. This one posed by uh, Reddit historian Mr. Awesome 3. Looks like Mr. Awesome 1 and 2 are already taken by the look of things. Anyway, third's not bad. Mr. Awesome 3 wants to know... If hot air balloons fly because they're filled with hot air, then why don't cars fly when you turn the heat on? <laughs> <laughs>